Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Welcome to Bottoming, the podcast about LGBTQ mental health, rock bottoming and beyond. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at BottomingPod or visit BottomingPodcast.com for more content relating to each episode. We've also added a support page to direct you to the right place if you're struggling or need someone to talk to. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe. Hi, my name's Brendan. My name's Matthew, and our pronouns are he and him. How have you been doing this week, darling? <sighs> yeah, I'm alright, love. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. I hope there won't be any disputes on this video call, <laughs> unlike <laughs> Jackie Weaver et al. Got no, <laughs> no authority here. <laughs> oh my gosh. I might actually eject you from this from this chat. Actually, can we just re-record the start? Because um, please refer to me as Britney Spears from now on. <laughs> 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 that is the energy that we need going forward 100 percent. actually it was just i i just it's just absolute fire flames mm-hmm. can't believe <laughs> i mean juicy juicy it's the it's the best tv i've watched all week to be honest <laughs> honestly if you'd have told me i don't know even a week ago actually uh-huh. you'll sit at 11 p.m. and watch an 18 minute zoom call on youtube yeah of a parish council meeting <laughs> oh my god and they told you to fuck off yeah but here we are here we are now she is a uk legend oh my god she's honestly she's going to be referenced next year on drag race yeah <laughs> that'll be one of the icons walking down the uh walking down the runway <laughs> Justice for Julie's iPad. Oh my anyway. gosh, Julie's <laughs> iPad. Oh my uh, lord. Anyway, if you don't know what we're talking about, then I don't know where you've been because, um, <laughs> yeah, this um, Handforth Parish Council meeting blew up um, last week. Just honestly, just Google Zoom meeting Parish yeah. Council, and there's been yeah. some great coverage on Love of Funds. So uh, yeah. direct yourself there <laughs> if you're a bit lost. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so we're back for our second week of LGBT plus History Month. Um, Jackie Weaver's not, unfortunately, not part of 
where we're going with this episode. Sadly, sadly. So we are going to take a little bit more of a serious tone um, this time around. So obviously had the fantastic um, Benjamin Dean and AKT last week. Um, I've almost finished the book now. Um, I've got to say I've had a few moments where I got quite emotional reading that. I've texted him a couple of times. So <laughs> he was like, baby, if that's, if that's making you emotional, he was like, you've still got, you know, for a ride. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, um, yeah, very, very proud and looking forward to seeing everyone else reading it as well. Um, but this week, yeah, as I say, we're going to be going a little bit more serious in tone. Um, we've covered this topic before in one of our previous episodes when we spoke to Garrett Conley, um, the author of Boy Erased. But we're going to be looking at conversion therapy this time around um, with more of a UK focus. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be chatting to Tommy Dickinson, who is the author of Curing Queers. Um, and we're also going to be speaking to um, Matthew from Band Conversion Therapy, which is a, um, a recent campaign started last year um, with the aim of, unsurprisingly, banning conversion therapy in the UK, which surprisingly is still legal in um, this country. So, uh, uh, yeah, quite an important episode, and I think taking part in the interviews and listening listening to them, it was um, quite eye opening. I think for for both of us. So, mm-hmm. we'll just give you a little bit of a content warning as well for these interviews. So there are talk um, and there are descriptions of conversion therapy and aversion therapy. Um, quite graphic descriptions of those and there's also um talk around suicide as well um so yeah we'll just get into it cool so here is tommy dickinson um my name is uh, dr tommy dickinson um i am the head of the department of mental health nursing um and a reader in nursing education at king's college london so this book um, essentially grew and, or emerged from um, from a sentence that I read in a book um, called A Gay History of Britain by Matt Cook. Um, and it was uh, probably about 12, 13 years ago now when I was reading that. And it was a sentence that just said during the 1960s and 70s, gay men... Um, were institutionalised in mental hospitals in the UK um, to receive um, treatment to cure them, to cure them, and I kind of thought, oh gosh, that's uh, really interesting. And I'm a mental health nurse uh, myself, uh, and I thought, you know, that's um, would I have? I, I how do I not know anything about this? So I thought mm-hmm. I must um, start doing some reading. So I, there was very limited reading out there, um, and I got in contact with Matt, um, who wrote the book, the author of the book, and um, we decided that it would be a good PhD to look at this in more detail. Um, so Matt subsequently became my PhD supervisor, and I, um, I, I studied this for my PhD. So that the, the book emerged from came from one sentence to a PhD thesis and then into a book. So that's its story, really. Um, so just to dive into the book, I guess it's um, focused around the 1935 to 74. So it's the first is it the first documented case of aversive therapy to um, when it was kind of stripped from DSM? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 1935 was the first year 
um, that a report on the use of aversion therapy being used to cure homosexuality was published in a medical journal. And then 1974 is the year that the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality as a classification of mental disorder. But it's really important to point out that the World Health Organization didn't remove um, didn't remove it as a mental disorder until 1990. Wow. The, yeah, the, the treatments petered out, though, um, in the mid-1970s because of the decision by the American Psychiatric Association, but moreover because um, of the gay liberation movement. Mm. Um, gay men and women were uniting and refuting that sickness label that had been attributed to them. So I think that, just as much as the... Um, the declassification was was uh, you know the the catalyst for um, for the reduction in these treatments. Mm. I mean, going back to the I guess post war period um, that you talk about in the book, um, I, I actually laughed out loud at some of the descriptions to the um, that some scientists kind of gave in terms of like signifying who who's gay and who's not mm. and there's one quote that's uh they came up with a the scientifically dubious notion that homosexual men did not display a gag reflex when a tongue depressor was put in their throat yeah <laughs> and then yeah. that they were um described as having feminine carrying angle of the arm mm. long legs narrow hips large muscles deficient hair on the face chest and back feminine distribution of pubic hair a high-pitched voice and a small penis and testicles. Yeah. And again, it's just absolutely wild. Could you describe, just I guess like, I, I know it's quite a, a big uh, chunk of time, but the, the culture around, I guess, primarily that post-war period um, in terms of how the police started to track down gay men? Yeah, so... I think I think the 1950s, that post-war period, particularly the 1950s, there was um, there was a there was a huge promotion of the traditional um, family, um, where you know the, the traditional heterosexual family, um, and um, lots of you know um, cultural references at the time promoted that as an ideal mm. um, and the police during that time were very ferocious in in their attempts um, to criminalize uh, to, to prosecute gay men because we have to also remember it was um, it was a criminal offense to be homosexual acts were, were a criminal offense uh, in England and Wales until 1967 um, Places like Scotland, Northern Ireland, Isle of Man would have to wait a lot longer um, to, to, for, for it to be um, decriminalised. But um, there were tactics that the police used um, to, um, to entrap gay men, and you know, such as public toilets. So they would um, often send a very attractive young uh, male police officer, plainclothes police officer, to... Um, to public toilets, and he would make um, an approach to to gay men. When they responded to that approach, um, they would be arrested. So that was quite common in, in, in during that period, uh, during nineteen fifties. I can't imagine just the unsafe, like uh, paranoia that must have been going through everyone's mind then, especially as a gay person, but 
um, that you're just constantly on edge with who you're interacting with. Who, could they be trustworthy? Are they or aren't they? And the types of you know ramifications for just you know being who you are. It's just it's, it's just an, completely unfathomable for me, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it is, you know, it's very difficult to go to go back into that time and try and, you know, imagine the lived experience of a gay man during that time. Um, you know, the, 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 it would it would be fear. Um, you know, they were very open to blackmail mm -hmm. as well, um, which led to, um, you know, to, to suicide. Um, you know, certainly, you know, several of the, the, the men that I interviewed um, said that you know it was either I mean I'll never forget one quote he said uh, it was either cure myself or kill myself and that's why he he underwent went the treatment so Gosh. yeah because I guess there isn't it wasn't just that there were these arrests going on people were actually self-referring as well right yeah absolutely so the majority of so 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 the the men were arrested um and then they would often be given the option of going to prison or to hospital to be cured. Um, and several of the men that I um, interviewed for the book um, went through that route. But actually, the overwhelming majority um, referred themselves or, or were referred via their GP. So they were so distressed by the turmoil that they found themselves in, uh, realising that they're that, that, that they gay, um, they went to their GP and their GP referred them to a specialist um, consultant psychiatrist who was um, who was delivering this treatment on the NHS. So that was the the, the main route in there into these treatments. Um, there was also um, you know a lot of um, news media at the time that was um, promoting these treatments um, so there was um, certainly an article in the observer um, in the 1960s um, that kind of promoted these these treatments um, and it was uh, written by the medical correspondent from the observer and one of the participants I interviewed actually specifically recalled that article and said that he read that and felt a sense of relief and the next day went to his GP and 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 um, and was um, referred for the treatment. So it, it, there was a lot of things going on um, at, at the time that, that, made, um, that made gay men feel that this was, um, that these treatments were, were, were a way out of the, of the, the, the trauma and turmoil that they, they felt they were in. And can you um, describe the types of aversion therapy that they'd uh, be having at these um, mental health hospitals? Sure. So there were two types of aversion therapy. There was um, electrical aversion therapy and there was chemical aversion therapy. So most people would might know about um, electrical aversion therapy, but that essentially involved the patient would be um, would be nursed as an outpatient. So they would usually go... Um, to the hospital for an hour, two or three times a week. And when they arrived there, they would go um, into a room and they would be sat on a wooden chair and in front of them would be um, image, would be a projector screen. And on that would be um, projected images of, of naked men. 
and their feet, their hands or their calves would be attached to electrodes and they would receive an electric shock, often administered by the, a nurse or a con, um, clinical psychologist. They would receive an electric shock in conjunction with, with seeing these images of the naked men. Um, and then they would be shown a picture of a female, naked female, and then they wouldn't receive um, an electric shock. And it was based essentially based on Pavlovian classical conditioning. You was to associate the pain of the, the electric shock with the image that you were seeing in front of you. So, in other words, the, the, uh, the naked man. Mm -hmm. So that was, um, that was electrical aversion therapy. Chemical aversion therapy um, was even more invasive. Um, so this would, the patient would be treated um, as an inpatient. So they would be admitted to a psychiatric hospital um, and then they would be taken straight into a side room of that psychiatric hospital. And in that room, there would be um, pictures of naked men that the consultant psychiatrist had, had already chosen. Um, and on those pictures, there would be a, a strong light shining on them. In that room, there would be nothing except a bed. There would be no toilet, no um, wash basin, nothing. Um, and every two hours, the nurse would come in and give the patient an injection of apomorphine, which is a really powerful emetic, so it made them violently vomit. Um, so this would go on every, every two hours, even through the night. Um, so they would be often kept awake by means of amphetamine at night, so they would get no sleep. Um, and that was the whole point of it. Um, also, the, the consultant psychiatrist would often have recorded um, some a, a pre-recording that is on loop in the room. So, and it would be saying pejorative comments about the person, um, such as "look as look at the mess you're in." This is because you're a disgusting homosexual. So, you can imagine after a couple of hours, um, you know, let alone three days, because this treatment went on for three days you would be, the person would be lying in their own elimination. And that was essentially, that was deemed to be the treatment. You were lying in your own elimination with these pictures um, of naked men around you. Again, associating that with the images of, of the naked men. After three days, the, um, the room would be, the patient could come out of the room, it would be cleaned. Um, the patient and the, the pictures of, of naked men would be changed to pictures of naked women. Um, the patient would be given an injection of testosterone, um, and when that um, had had, had um, become therapeutically effective, which could take a couple of hours, the patient was encouraged to go back into their room and masturbate over the pictures of the females. Um, so yeah, it's it's. Um, quite, you know, quite barbaric, what is, is, you know, barbaric treatments. Yeah. yeah, it just sounds completely, um, I mean, it doesn't sound like a real world thing to me now, um, which I guess is, is, is kind of the luxury of what we have today. Mm -hmm. um, what I was surprised to read about in the book was also that there were a lot of gay nurses within the, those hospitals and a type of you know, a, almost gay culture within that as well. Um, could you also talk about, yeah, 
the culture that went on at these hospitals as well as you know the dichotomy of gay men administering these treatments to other gay men sure and and this was this was really really interesting um, and and i think that that is the, 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 it's a great word to, to describe it the dichotomy because what essentially um came about was that um some of the people that aimed for you identified themselves as gay men and they also administered this treatment um and i think you know when i really explored that with with these um you know with these former gay nurses they um they they obviously had a lot of contrition about about what they did um, and regret but you know through having having the benefit of historical hindsight but at the time they deemed themselves to be very very different to those patients so those nurses were generally accepted by um you know some of them were, were, were very open about their homosexuality and were still accepted within the hospital um the hospital culture um but they deemed themselves as different because they were they were they'd had they'd accepted their sexuality but the patients that they were nursing really hadn't and they were desperate to change you know who they were and were willing to undergo anything um to to do that and i guess you know we could you, you know that one of them said well it's like if you had cancer um and you you know you wanted to you, you you were desperate to have it treated you would you would undergo chemotherapy which has its own side effects and you know that's that's kind of how i how i saw it i was it was the only option available the only treatment available and these patients were so desperate to to be to be cured that you know that's why i kind of felt that i was doing the best I could in that situation um, even though they didn't have any faith in 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 the treatments necessarily um, we also have to look at the culture of um, psychiatric hospitals at that time they were very hierarchical institutions um, where you know the doctor or the consultant psychiatrist was seen as um, you know as the master and, and a good nurse then was one who did as they were told and they didn't think out the box. They weren't very different to how I, you know, how we teach and, and educate nurses now. It's about thinking outside the box and, and absolutely question, questioning practice um, where, where, where needed. But back then, if you did that, you were seen as very oppositional, um, defiant, and you could lose your job over it. So there was lots, it was, it was multifactorial. It was very layered, um, you know, the, 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 the reasons why all nurses, but particularly, um, you know, nurses who identified themselves as gay also also administered this treatment. You also talk about um, certain nurses that, you know, didn't want to give this treatment to the patients because they had a lot of empathy towards what they were going through. Could you um, talk about a bit a bit about those experiences? So that so even though the institution was incredibly hierarchical, um, there were very very few uh, nurses that I interviewed who were able to subvert the treatment process um, 
and get out of administering these treatments in really quite clever ways and and I've devoted a whole chapter to these nurses and, and called them subversive nurses because they, they they were they didn't steadfastly say even though they thought this they didn't stead, stead, you know they didn't steadfastly say no I'm not I'm not doing this I totally disagree with it they thought that um, and realized the treatment you know it didn't sit well with their moral compass but knew that by voicing you know by saying no I'm not doing it would it would lead to you know lead to challenges so they got out of of, of, of administering the, the treatment so there were some examples where um, one nurse um, she was on night duty and she was supposed to give the injection to this patient uh, every two hours this he was having chemical aversion therapy and she said um, you know I'm going to pretend to to you need to pretend that I've given you this injection and she kind of just squirted it onto the onto the floor um you know in the rest of the the mess that he he was he was in um so that's you know that's one of the one of the one um one example another one is um once the treatment had had you know the consultant psychiatrist had decided okay we, you've had enough of this chemical aversion therapy or electrical aversion therapy they would they would sometimes undergo what was called social skills training, and um, this meant that the nurse, one of the female nurses, would go on a, a pretend date um, with um, with the patient to to get their to build up their skills um, around being with women, um, so that they could you know when they're discharged go on go on dates with with um, with women in the community. There was never any. There was never any. It's supposed to be any intimacy with the nurses. I must, you know, stress that it was. You know, it was. It was just purely about, um, you know, being with, being with females and, and and building up their skills around that. Um, but the nurses colloquially referred to them as as as, as dates, and this particular nurse. Um, went on um on this date with with this patient and they uh, she recalled the story of of you know he was in incredibly camp and they had such a laugh and they were rolling about laughing together and the patient confided in her that look the treatment hasn't worked I'm, I'm still gay um anyway she went back to the ward and reported that the treatment had gone well um, and that there's there was no obvious homosexual behaviour, and the patient was you know discharged a few a few weeks later. Um, so there there's some of the the things that um, that, uh, that that nurses did to to uh, to get out of, um, of administering the treatment. It just sounds again just <laughs> completely <laughs> bizarre. And although you can kind of look back and think. That's just very weird. I can't even imagine that happening. But these are very traumatic experiences mm. and in a culture that would be incredibly repressive. What would be what were the long term impacts of these of these things? While while all of the people that I interviewed um, you know, said that they they're very you know, they they they're now accepting of their their sexuality you know, that if you've lived through and experienced that, which they did, um, you know, it's, it's a traumatic thing to go through. 
Um, and many of them have said, you know, that they can often get upset about it. And, you know, sometimes they they said they become quite angry at themselves for putting themselves through that treatment. So I guess that, you know, there is there's definitely a long term impact of 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 the of these treatments. There's, there'll be a book coming out um, later this year, hopefully, and with Manchester University Press is looking at um, alternative uh, HIV and AIDS histories in, in in Western Europe, and I've got a chapter in that um, around uh, the work that nurses did uh, caring for people with HIV and AIDS during the the initial crisis in the eighties and nineties. Um, so that's um, you know there's some really kind of um, moving stories in there as well um, around some of the you know compassion that nurses showed um, during that time and also some um, some subversion by nurses as well which I think is 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 great to the generation that came before me I would say I'm sorry, um, life was really hard for you and thank you for, for keeping on uh, getting through everything so that we can be a bit more free than you were. To the generation that comes after me, I'd like to say be bold, be yourself and enjoy being fabulous and queer. So listening to those accounts from Tommy in Curing Queers, it, it almost seems like uh, those things are just in the past and we don't have to think about them anymore. Mm-hmm. But there are types of things, similar things going on today in the form of conversion therapy. Yeah, well, I actually, I remember watching this at the time um, and I know it caused a, a fair bit of backlash. Um, but it was on Channel 4 and I think I think the title didn't do it Um any justice but it was called cure me i'm gay and it was um dr christian from embarrassing bodies fame mm-hmm. um but he went undercover i mean he went undercover quotation marks undercover because people obviously knew who he was at the time but he went through the practices that were still legal in the uk at the time mm-hmm. um and yeah it caused quite a bit of backlash from um people within the community because it was seen as even though it was incredibly critical of the practices, I think the fact that the title itself was called Kill Me and Gay, people saw it as being um, like a promotional material yeah. for conversion therapy. Um, so, yeah, I think that was quite a difficult one for quite a few people at the time. When um, was that? I rem- how, it was 2014. Oh. I remember watching it actually while I was at university and um, it, it was quite a rough watch. Um, I don't know if it, I think it might be on Amazon actually at the minute. Um, but yeah, and then there's another one. It was more recently, but um, Liverpool, Liverpool's newspaper, the Liverpool Echo. Um, there was a, a journalist there called Josh Parry, um, and he exposed a church in Liverpool that was um, offering conversion therapy courses. Um, and I think that kind of shot me out of all of the stories I'd heard over the years. That shot me more, and I think it was because mm-hmm. I could connect to it being from Liverpool yeah. and knowing the area that it was set within. Um but yeah, he he conducted an investigation, went undercover, um and exposed some really dark things that were happening 
um, in this church. It was kind of including like a three-day starvation program, kind of like compulsory three to four-hour praying sessions. Like there was really, really intense things going on in there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this was around the same time that the Department for Equalities released a 75-point action plan to tackle, tackle conversion therapy. Um, so yeah, bear in mind that was two years ago over two years ago now and mm -hmm. um, it still isn't banned mm -hmm. in the uk so kind of i guess take from that what you will in terms of the efficiency of the government in dealing with this <laughs> shade more recently in july last year actually um a campaign was set up by matt and harry um called bank conversion therapy and we caught up with them to see how the campaign's coming along Hi, I'm Matthew Heinemann. I'm the co-founder of the Band Conversion Therapy Campaign, which was set up in July 2020. And what was the drive for launching the campaign? Um, it's, it's twofold in a way. So I've got, an, I've got a personal experience with it. So I grew up in a very religious environment and um, I became a, an evangelical missionary when I was 23, I think. So I... Um, volunteered on this ship, a missionary ship for, for two years. I was completely in the closet, completely, well, somewhere in between in denial and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's blurry sometimes. Yeah. Um, and whilst I was on board and a missionary, I accidentally came out, outed myself and they offered me conversion therapy. So what they, well, obviously they didn't use the word, they don't use the words conversion therapy, but they, um, they wanted me to publicly confess my sins, repent, and then um, agree to go through counselling. So I said no when I left. Um, and actually, the, the, I think this this bit is quite important, which maybe we can touch on later. But um, the sort of, I think the fear for a lot of people going through conversion therapy is, what if I don't do it? And I've experienced that, <laughs> which isn't fun. And I think that's what kind of keeps people um, in that world and like, mm -hmm. I'm trapped because of the fear of what happens if I say no. Mm -hmm. um, but then, so that was what, six years ago, seven years ago. So fast forward to um, July, maybe not July, May, May, June. Um, Harry, co-founder Harry Hitchens um, had found that uh, there was a conversion therapist. That I don't want to call him that, a guy homophobe <laughs> um advertising his services on on instagram and he he was like completely just couldn't believe that this was happening and we were chatting he posted on instagram and got lots of i mean a huge swell of shock and horror and it, it kind of went viral in itself and then we said well clearly there's an appetite people care mm -hmm. first of all care but also people don't know so let's just, and our whole approach, our whole idea was just about awareness raising. So just to like remind people that, yes, we do live in a very safe UK generally, but this is still happening. And uh, yeah, I suppose it's that if not, we're not free until we're all free, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've got a partner and when, um, when we met, he's 50, so he's, you know, he's, been around lived as an openly gay man since he was 18 and he had the as most gay people do just you know thought it's okay to be gay now 
you know? And he met me and he, it was kind of the first time that he was confronted with the reality of what it, it could actually be like for some people, depending on, simply just depending on the environment that they were born into. Yeah. And of course, like we're, you know, I have to acknowledge we're very privileged being in the UK. So if I was born elsewhere, then it could be even worse. Yeah. Um, and his reaction is something that I'm just continually hearing every day, even yesterday. I'm like, I, I imagine, obviously, I'm so deep in it that everyone now knows. You know, we, we um, launched our campaign. Every newspaper in the UK ran a story on it, and, you know, headline story. Um, it, it, for me, it was unavoidable. How could, how could people not know? But the, the fact is, people still don't know. Mm-hmm. People still don't realize that it's happening. Um, so I think that is just <laughs> how can we solve something if people are still unaware? Mm-hmm. And um, I think as well, it can become this abstract. It can become this abstract uh, kind of problem. And until we hear people's real life ex- stories and real experiences, then it's going to be very easy for people to kind of just desensitize and just take any emotion out of it and just say, yeah, but religious freedom mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. I read in your um, on your website that there's some people actually use the argument for conversion therapy or against conversion therapy um, to almost deter people from um, allowing like trans healthcare. Can you talk about that a little bit? So to be honest, the trans um, transgender angle, let's say, wasn't something that uh, I was thinking of at all. Mm-hmm. So I've gone through a big learning journey as well. Um, and there's this um, argument thrown around all the time that, and to be honest, it was kind of J.K. Rowling who began it in a way, which is that um, trans healthcare is in itself a form of conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we're tackling and facing all the time. And I think the rebuttal to that is very easy, mm-hmm. um, which is, well, first of all, I, I even hate using the word therapy when we talk about conversion therapy because it's not a therapy. But therapy is non-directive. So if you, I've, I've had therapy. If you go to therapy, they are, they're just supporting you through what, what it is that you're experiencing. And they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're there as a mirror almost to reflect back. And it's not about pushing you in a certain direction. Whereas conversion therapy is exactly that. They've mm-hmm. got an end goal. They've got a target that you have to hit. And that's what they're pushing you towards. And there's no other option. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, not ther- that's not therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are adamant and clear that any ban, which hopefully will come into act, has to protect not only um, trans people accessing healthcare, but equally um, people who want to re-transition as well. There's this. There's also this, this argument which is thrown up. What about people who have transitioned and want to retransition? Well, mm-hmm. of course, like that's that. Of course, that has to be. We have to have all healthcare mm-hmm. um, available, and this shouldn't impact any of that. Yeah. So, how close would you say that we are to seeing a ban on conversion therapy? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is a good question. Um, we're, I mean, of course, we're, we're hopeful and we are continuing to push. And this year, 
this year we will be pushing hard for a ban. Um, but that's that question, like that's anyone's guess. Um, yeah, it just feels a little bit that there's there isn't a an, an urgency, and, and and that's I suppose in a sense the next phase of our campaign is to provide that urgency. Um, but yeah, I mean we are hoping that this year we will see a ban. The the like you know I I think the big concern is that um, it's just like a fig leaf ban, so it doesn't it just it doesn't cover everything that it needs to and mm -hmm. that it's actually ineffective. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's really important that the community know what a good and a, 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 a sort of um, worthwhile ban actually looks like. And that mm -hmm. we don't all, you know, if the government announces um, a ban that's ineffective, we can't all come out singing and dancing and praising, you know, because if um, if the ban doesn't cover all ages, if it doesn't support trans people, if it doesn't cover religious practices, if it doesn't cover um, like this idea of consent, like I don't, I personally don't believe you can consent to conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. um, then it's you know it's not it's not enough. Yeah. And what can uh, listeners do to support the campaign this year, especially? I think. In the next months, we will be having a lot, you'll see a lot more activity. So there's going to be various things, whether that be contacting your MP and just saying, this is uh, this is something I care about and you're my MP, so I want you to, you know, do something. Um, but but equally, I think just that, that noise we were talking about, there are still so many people who don't, um, who don't know what what's going on. And also, it's about... Like I, I touched on, I, I just don't think people understand that what what potentially drives someone uh, to conversion therapy, mm -hmm. and that in itself is like that 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 story is one that will be told and needs to be told. Um, like I I what how did I put it? I said um, you cannot create an environment which teaches. Uh, LGBT people to be ashamed of themselves and then use that shame as proof of our brokenness, mm -hmm. which is exactly what's happening at the moment. So basically, we, you know, uh, LGBT, especially and especially LGBT people of faith, so people who, who are LGBT who've grown up in a faith-based environment, are it's ingrained in them almost from before they even knew that they were gay, that it's wrong to be mm -hmm. gay. And so as a result, they, of course, feel ashamed of who they are and hide it from the world and hide it from everyone. And that shame grows and grows and grows. And then eventually they reach breaking point and they, well, they believe that, yes, it's wrong. And I feel this way because it's wrong. And then they seek help. And if we just remove the shame in the first place, um, then there would be no need for, for any attempts to fix gay people. I suppose I can only speak about my own experience uh, within the Christian church, but I, I, it's the same regardless um, of what faith, I, I imagine. But any, uh, any LGBT person who grows up within the traditional Christian community knows to keep their sexuality firmly under wraps. Um, and they will hear frequently, frequent diatribe against homosexuality that it is wrong and sinful. And, uh, and I suppose as a result, then they will suffer 
great great shame and they are oppressed mm-hmm. and they they they're often oppressed before they even realize that they themselves are gay so they kind of grew up in this this is what i kind of mentioned but they grew up in this this bubble where they just know from almost from birth that it's wrong to be gay and then when you're confronted with the knowledge that you're gay as well or that you're lesbian or trans or bi then that's a real struggle to kind of come to terms with Mm -hmm. so if you're oppressed and you follow the path which is laid out for you by your oppressor is this really a choice especially when the consequences of saying no or of, of following your own path risks ostracization from family and community. So I'd say to say no to conversion therapy and pursue an authentic life can come at a high price, one which too, is too great for many to risk paying. So if you imagine your entire world, like my, my entire world was built around faith, family, friends, community and career. That, so the whole, that they're all grouped together, your faith and your family and your friends and your community, it's all in within this little world you know you don't really dive out of that too much so to say no to whatever they're offering to say no to conversion therapy means to risk losing everyone you know and love in your most vulnerable moment your entire support network and i just in what way is that is that in what way is that choice is that a choice or isn't that is that choice in any way free um, you cannot have free will with a gun pointed to your head, which is exactly what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And this is where the coercive element comes into play. If you say no, then you have to leave. If you say no, then you, you can't be with us anymore. And how, how can a 16-year-old or a 25-year-old or you know, any age make, a, make that decision and leave, and leave their entire world behind and start again? And it doesn't paint a really beautiful picture for anyone trying to come out either. But this is why it's so important that these um, like practices, therapies are made illegal because no one should have to choose between, you know, their family and their whole world or accept accepting themselves. Mm-hmm. And like we haven't even discussed the harm that it causes generally you know mm. we haven't we haven't even like and that is obviously that that's a really important factor but i think the right to just the, the right to be free and to to um love and accept yourself is incredibly important and you know yeah i just it, it yeah i just can't i can't <laughs> i can't anymore it's just the fact that it's still going on is uh it's heartbreaking I think as well, just last thing is, you know, people, when you hear conversion therapy, we, I think we want to make it seem more cre- like credible than what it is, but it, it, you don't go to a conversion therapist per se. It's not like, you know, you phone up and you book an appointment and you, you know, you go and yeah. sit in a chair and it's, it's, it takes so many different forms. And it, like I shared um, recently, so a story which came, which came back to me, which I can't believe I forgot to be honest, but um, so whilst there was a missionary before I came out, um, someone suspected that I were gay, and they spoke to the, like the personnel 
manager. So he was basically, he's basically a pastor, but he was there to like care for everyone and talk if people need to talk about some about something. So he called me into his office. I didn't know what it was about and confronted me about it, asked me to rate on a scale of one to 10 how gay I were. Mm. Um, he told me this story about a gay man and a lesbian who, you know, we're both gay, obviously, um, being a gay man and a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, that, they, that God provided them for each other and that uh, he could do that for me too. And all I had to do was ask. And I, of course, you know, closeted, afraid, ashamed, lied, just completely just lied through my teeth. No, I'm not gay. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and you know, it was enough and he, I went on and it was a year later that I came out, but nothing happened in, in that year. And that is the beginning of conversion, conversion therapy. That's how simple it is, mm-hmm. you know? And for, for some it's, they, they go and ask for help and they, they have prayer or they go to the front of their church and people surround them. And, you know, it's so wide and, and varied, um, which is, it, and I think the, the casual nature in which it's delivered, knowing the harm that it can cause, is just very worrying. To the generation that came before us, I would say thank you for opening doors that allow the rest of us to be freer today. Uh, we wouldn't be able to tell the stories and occupy the spaces that we do today if it wasn't for you and your courage, so thank you. And to the generation that come after us, I would say, don't forget what the older generation have done for you. Uh, we can't let LGBTQ plus history be forgotten. Um, we have to use it to keep fighting for those who still don't have the equal rights and opportunities that the rest of us might. Uh, and you know, look sickening while you do it. Huge thanks to Tommy and Matt for being involved in today's episode. Um, You can buy Tommy's book, Curing Queers, from Manchester University Press. And to find out more about band conversion therapy, you can follow them on Instagram at bandconversiontherapy and also go to their website, bandconversiontherapy.com, where you can share their open letter, sign the petition and mail your MP. Next week, we're interviewing Shah, who's the festival director for Homotopia, the UK's longest-running LGBTQIA arts festival. Which I am very excited about because it means it's essentially a Liverpool-dedicated episode because it is a festival born and bred in Liverpool, so... Woo! (laughs) No, I'm I'm here for it too. I'm I'm (laughs) excited. Very, very excited. So, uh, we'll be seeing you next week. Um, Don't forget to review, rate and subscribe, please. It means a lot to us. Um, But yeah, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. And see you next week. You do an amazing sweetie. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.